0: Well, there are uh, no hoses and no glasses up here this week. There'll be no malfunctions either, which we had last week. Uh, But I hope that the thought of the judgment seat of Christ is still living in your hearts as we have been uh, studying that over the last couple weeks. I had a man last night that told me that uh, he had a guy friend of his who um, was here last weekend and had called him and just said, I don't want to be the shot glass. I don't want to be the shot glass. And I hope that none of us here uh, do either. That God might grow our capacity to be blessed by Him with rewards in eternity as we treasure and serve and sacrifice and steward and suffer in this life for the name of Jesus Christ. It will be worth it uh, someday. Well, this is... uh, this is a week that we get going on more text, and uh, so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter three. And today we want to do what we normally do, and that is to read it, to seek to understand it, and then try to apply it uh, to our lives. The title of the message is "All is ours because we are Christ, and all is His. All is ours because we is, we are Christ, and Christ is His." You recall that Paul has, uh, here as he's been writing to these Corinthians, he has been uh, developing now this thought from the beginning of the book. Remember that the city of Corinth was a very sophisticated city for its day. It was a city of great learning, Uh, it was a city of great um, uh, wealth and prestige, and they loved wisdom. They loved wisdom in corinth and the wise men and the philosophers of the day were uh they were the celebrities and especially if they were able to speak well the orators were truly the celebrities of the day places of business would empty out because so and so was speaking and they would go and they would listen and so it was very much a culture that loved to uh celebrate uh man they lifted men up They identified with them and became their followers. And the big problem at the church at Corinth was that the the Corinthian Christians were bringing this same mindset and this same value set into the church, and they were saying that we are actually followers of Paul or Apollos or Peter. And they were lifting these men and putting them on pedestals and actually finding their identity, their spiritual identity, in a human being. And this had create this created all kinds of problems in the church because whenever you lift men high, it creates division and so there was a divisive spirit and there was rancor uh, amongst the people and this was leading to then the most messed- up church in all of the New Testament and this the Church of Corinth truly was and this is why now he says what he does and uh, let me just read our passage uh, together this morning. here's what it says, beginning in verse. Uh, Sixteen, do you not know that you are god 's temple and god 's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys god 's temple, God will destroy him for god 's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. if anyone thinks among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. All right, Paul begins here now by basically chastising the church, the Corinthian Christians, and saying, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? He says, do you not know? And the, by the way, in saying this, he's not saying the kind of like, oh, oh, you didn't know that? It's more like, don't you get it? Don't you know that you are the dwelling place of God and that God treasures you? And of course, they didn't. They didn't realize that they were the the repository of the very presence of God. And wherever God is, that is a sacred and a holy place. We see this in the Old Testament again and again. For example, you might recall when God called Moses. Remember, Moses had been a prince in, in Egypt, and he... And spent 40 years on the backside of a desert, kind of wondering what, you know, what's his life going to be. And one day he looked up and on the top of the mountain there was a bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And he did the same thing that you would do if you looked in the backyard of your house and saw a bush that was burning and it wasn't consumed. He said, I'm going to go check this out. And so he went to the top of the mountain and he got there. And as he came close, the bush spoke. A voice out of the bush spoke and said, take off your sandals where you are standing is holy ground. Now, why was it holy? Was it because there's a little spot on the earth that is somehow holier than everywhere else? No, God was there. And wherever God is, that is a holy place. We can think of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which symbolized the very presence of God with his people. And God said, listen, uh, don't touch the Ark or you're going to die. And you might recall that when David was moving the Ark... That it kind of jostled in the wagon and the driver reached back to set steady it and God struck him dead in that moment. Now, why, why was that ark so precious? Was it, was it because of the gold or the wood that made it or the poles that carried it? No, it was precious because God was there. Or you think of the tabernacle, when they created that tabernacle and it had uh, the place of worship and it had the holy place and it had the holy of holies, that it was sacred and holy. Why? Because of the wood and the construction? No, it was because God was there. Wherever God is, it is a precious place. The temple, and that's the language that he uses here, the temple was sacred because God was there. The Shekinah glory of God descended upon Solomon's temple and it represented on earth the presence of God. He was there. And now in the New Testament and in the New Covenant, God does not dwell in a location. He does not dwell in a building. He dwells amongst His people. And that's us here tonight, this morning. This whole Saturday night thing is just messing with my mind. But it is night somewhere in the world, so I am entirely accurate with that. God's presence dwells amongst his people. So that we can say this right now, if we had eyes to see, God is here. Like right here, he's here. He dwells amongst his people You can say it this way, when we get together, perhaps we should take our shoes off out of reverence for what it means for God's people to get together. In fact, I thought about doing that as a, just a little object lesson and saying, everybody, why don't you take your shoes off? Thought about it. <laughs> I still think it's a good idea. Uh, but do you get the point? How many of us come to this moment or come to a gathering of Christians, whether it be a prayer meeting or a small group or some other thing, and realize what's going on. That the very presence through the Spirit of Almighty God is here, dwelling amongst us. Think of it right now. This is going on. God's Spirit is here. Somebody here came in here with some kind of a burden. And now we've opened God's Word, and we've read His Word that is inspired, and somehow just the reality of a God and a revealed Word is working in somebody's heart right now in this room somewhere to encourage the person who has the burden. And there's somebody else who comes in here today, and you have a a a bondage to sin or something that you've done and you're feeling guilt and you're wondering what you should do or whether you should do anything and god's spirit through his word and amongst his people is encouraging you to deal with that sin and maybe bringing conviction but also the promise of grace and forgiveness and so you're wrestling with that right now god's spirit is at work and somebody else comes in here with you you bring in some other relational issue whatever it is but god's word now in his spirit dwelling amongst his people is doing his work and that happens whenever god's people get together if we had eyes to see what is really happening here we'd recognize that this is a sacred and a holy place why because of the building or us no god's here he's here and so paul writes to the corinthians and he's like don't you realize who you are you are a treasure to god you are the dwelling place of the presence of God in this world. It is not in the temple to Diana or the temple to some other God. You are God's temple on this earth. You're it. Wow. If only we had eyes to see, we would realize what is going on. And of course, Paul had eyes. He knew who they were. And in writing this, he's, he's just like incredulous that the Christians would treat something that is so sacred, the church, as so common. And how were they doing that? They were doing that by the way that they were treating one another. One writer said it better than I, than I can. He said this, In most Protestant circles, one tends to take the local parish, which that's not really a word that we use uh, very much, Although somebody recently said, oh, at your parish, I was just like, okay, makes you the parishioners here this morning, at your parish, the parish, the church, most Protestant circles, one t- tends to take the local church altogether too lightly. Seldom does one sense that it is or can be experienced as a community that is so powerfully indwelt by the Spirit that it functions as a genuine alternative to the pagan world in which it is found. It is perhaps not too strong to suggest that the recapturing of this vision of its being, both in terms of it being powerfully indwelt by the Spirit, and of its thereby serving as a genuine alternative to the world, is its single greatest need. He's right. I mean, in this world... Listen, the world, they got their little groups that get together. they got their clubs, and they've got uh, their, their PTOs, and they've got their schools, and they've got their organizations, political action groups, and all of that. The world has got all of that. The pagan world around us, they've got... You can get together with people there. And the world looks at the church and says... And by the way, in those places, guess what's happening? There's political power moves and there's people saying things about one another and they're, they're, they're lifting men up and they're dividing and there's all kinds of, it's, it's, it, it's messy and all that. And so the world looks at the church and when they see that same thing going on within the church, they're like, well, there's nothing to you guys. There is nothing special there. There is nothing sacred there because you are treating your church the same way that I treat my gym or my club. Or whatever it is. But when God's people recognize the sacred reality of the presence of God dwelling amongst his people and thereby treat it as a sacred and holy thing, specifically not the building, but the people, this now says to a pagan world, what is up there? Because that is unlike anything that we see in the world around us. And that is the church. Where where do you go for something like this is supposed to be? You can't find it anywhere because christ is making this new society He is forming in us a kind of unity and love that the world looks at and ought to look at and say we see something different in you Don't treat it as a common thing It's not The other implication is in verse 17, and this is a very sober warning, when God says, if anyone destroys God's temple, and by the way, who's God's temple? We are. are. That's right. We are God's temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This echoes what Jesus said in Luke 17. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. In other words, because the church is sacred to God and precious to God, if you mess around with his church, God is going to mess around with you and you do not want to be on the wrong side of God. Friends, listen, the church is sacred, sacred. And God loves it and his eye is upon us. And when he sees people that are doing damage to the body of Christ, whether in their attitude or their laziness or in some way being destructive to relationships or whatever it is, he now, because he treasures the church, says, I am going to mess around with you. You mess around the church, God will mess around with you. It's much like if you can imagine a father who walks into a bedroom in his home at the bedroom of his, of his young daughter and he finds a prowler in the room. Now what do you suppose that dad's going to do if he's, if he's any kind of a dad? Is he going to say, well, good to see you. Hey, carry on. You know, <laughs> I don't think so. In that moment, it doesn't matter how skinny he is. It doesn't matter how uh you know wimpy he is he becomes arnold doesn't he you know ah. and if he's taking jim pitt's karate class (laughs) he now has an opportunity to use some of the moves he's why because he loves his daughter any father that loves his daughter You mess around with his daughter, he's going to mess around with you. And God is the same way. God loves the church. And this is something that the Corinthians didn't get. And I wonder if here today, if we get it, because too often there are people that view the church like it is just some other organization that they're a part of. It's a a thing in their life, but they got lots of things in their life. Friend, let me tell you, what do you have in your life that Jesus Christ gave his blood for? You have nothing. What do you have in your life that is an eternal, an eternal, sacred group? You have nothing, neither do I. God did not die for a school. He didn't die for a government. He didn't die for a country. He died for the church. And therefore, it is precious to God. We'd better treat it that way. And so maybe just to ask the question, is your presence in even this church, are are you life-giving to the congregation? Is your presence a source of encouragement? Are you uh, using the gifts that God has given to you to serve the body? Are you expressing the love of God in the way that you treat, look, communicate, share, fellowship with people around uh, the church or not? I think we'd better get that. It's a sober warning. You destroy the church, God will destroy you. Whoa. I think we better pay attention to that. So, Paul now, as he develops this thought, this comes right on the heels of the judgment seat of Christ in verses 10 through 15, emphasizing the fact that the church is the temple of God on earth because God dwells here. It is sacred to God. Don't mess with it. Now he moves to a theme that he's been developing beginning in chapter 1 and the whole thing of wisdom. And the fact that God turns human wisdom upside down, inside out, backwards, however you want to say it. But here's what he says, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. And we spent quite a bit of time in chapter one with this dichotomy between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man always begins with its point of reference as being the glory of man. The wisdom of God always begins with the point of reference of the, wi- of the glory of God. Man's wisdom will appear to be on the surface of Wisdom, But in the end, it shows itself to be folly. God's wisdom to the natural man at first appears to be folly. But in the end, it shows itself to be eternal wisdom. And the reason that this is the case is that the point of reference for the wisdom of God in chapter 1 is the cross of Jesus Christ. Which is folly to the world. But it is the wisdom of god and the reason that it is is it tells us Really everything that we want to know and this morning I can say to you it tells you what you want to know this morning It tells us who we are the cross does We are sinners, aren't we? We are sinners. It tells us what we need I need righteousness And the forgiveness of sins the cross tells me that the cross tells me where it comes from it doesn't come from man. All the religions of the world that man has come up with say that it comes from man. The cross says that righteousness comes from God, not from man. It tells me what God is like, that he is holy and sacrificial and loving and beautiful. The cross tells us All of these things. To the world, that sounds like folly. Go on, go on, um, on Oprah and and say the things that I just said, and and what kind of response are you going to get? Well, we actually played the clip a few weeks ago, if you remember that. Uh, That's the response that you get in the world. Like, you guys are morons. What what are you talking about? No, it doesn't make any sense. But that's the natural response. Through the Spirit, God has revealed the wisdom of the cross which in the end shows it to be eternal wisdom. So man's wisdom leads to nothing. God's wisdom leads to salvation. And that's now what Paul is saying is he's emphasizing that for anyone to become wise, they must do what is counterintuitive to the natural man. Humble yourself. Which he says in verse 18, become a fool. So that in the gospel... I may surrender myself to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and become wise, which is ultimately salvation. So to prove the point now, Paul does what every good pastor does, quotes scripture. He quotes two passages. One is from Job, in which Job says, uh, or emphasizes the fact that God outwits all of the schemes of men. And the other is from Psalm 94, which says basically the same thing, that the thoughts of the wise are are foolishness to God. They are futile. So the wise think that they are wise, and by human standards they are, but in the eyes of God they are fools. Is that true? Well, let's think about it for a moment. Think of all of the wise men that have ever lived. And women, by the way, men generically Lest I get myself in trouble here this morning. All the wise people that have ever lived. And think of all the things that they've ever said. Little sayings, Confucius says, la, 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 whatever it is. All the books that they've written. Think of all the things that down through the years that they have done. What has it gained them now? Together? Nothing. Why? They're dead. They're dead. And think of all of the accomplishments that man has ever done. All of the great things that so and so did or the the the, the success that so and so had and the empires that they built and all of the rest. What today do all of those what have those things gained them? Nothing. I was I was going over this message last night at a local restaurant establishment <laughs> that uh and, and, and as I did, there were TVs that were playing with sports on them, and somehow this helps me get my heart ready. I don't know why, but it does, as I sort of watch and go over my sermon. And as I was, I was doing this, they came on and they announced that um, the women's coach at some team on the East Coast, I don't remember what, what state, but th- this women's coach um, died yesterday. And that she's revered by all of the other coaches, and she had championships and things that she had done. And it, I was just studying this, and I just thought to myself, now, what, what does the national championship gain? What does all the wins gain? In the end, it gains nothing in and of themselves, right? And this is true of our life. Our lives, humanly speaking, we think they're significant. Here we are. We live according to these th- th- different things. But in the end, we die. And it doesn't matter who we were or who we are. In the end, it is futile. None of us can outwit God or outlast God. We all, in the end, we're all dead. God always wins. I told you sometime, I don't remember how long ago, I told you the story of how I was in, in, uh, California and I really wanted to see Ronald Reagan's presidential library. And I drove, 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 drove. And I got there after they had closed, but I tried to sneak in by checking all the doors and, and all the doors were locked. And I'm standing on the backside of the, of the, of the facility there. And a guard comes out and says, what are you doing? And I, we've been watching you on the cameras. And I said, I'm just trying to get in. I leave in the morning and, and, uh, and, and so he says, well, tough luck. And so, uh, 10 minutes later though, he opens the door again and he says, Hey, you know what? I, I hate for you to think Californians don't have hospitality. Once you come in and he gave me a personal tour of Ronald Reagan's library, it was really great. I've told you that story before. Um, but as I was waiting for him, here's the point I was going to make as I was waiting for him, I was standing there and this has been some years ago. Now I was standing there and here they have the plot where they're going to bury him. I mean, he's president of the United States, and they already have the spot. Okay, when he dies, we'll put him here. Sort of depressing, isn't it? But this is the reality of our existence. You have a spot waiting for you, too. It's already there. This is true for all of us. And so we can think that all the things that we're doing and all of our accomplishments and doing this and that, in the end, humanly speaking, is going to be significant. But in the end, it's not. It's not. And this is the bane of our existence. We want to think that our lives matter, but humanly speaking, the wisdom and the accomplishments humanly amount to nothing. In the end, God's wisdom is what always wins. And I know you're like, man, I came here to church. I wanted to get a good word, something encouragement. You're going to die. And this is the testimony of history, that we, we, try to, we try to maneuver and we try to out-scheme God and all that, but in the end, we, we, we can't. Think of Scripture. Think of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, powerful man, matches wits with God, what happens to him? His army's floating in the Red Sea, right? Think about, uh, I love the story of in, in Esther of Haman. And Haman wanted to destroy God's people, the Jews. And so he, and there was one of them, Mordecai, that he really, really, really hated. And so one day he builds the gallows to hang Mordecai on him. And on that very day, he's hung on gallows of his own making. Twist, right? I'm going to win against God. No, you're not. No, you're not. Think about the religious leaders. Truly, the religious leaders who said, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's driving us nuts. He's drawn people away from us. We're losing our prestige. He's saying things against us. We're going to get him. We are going to get him. He thinks he's the son of God. No way. And they killed him. And they unwittingly made him Savior and Lord of all. Think about Satan. All these millennia trying to destroy the work of God, trying to destroy God's people. And everything he does fulfills the purposes of God. Satan, as as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. Satan is a frustrated devil. And then here we have us, here today. And you might be here today and think, well, I can kind of play games with God. Like you might be here today and... You've got a certain, you've got the mask on, you know, you're, you've got your Christian outfit on or your Christian sort of appearance on, and, but inside there are secrets and there are things that you're holding and you're thinking, I can kind of beat the system, I can kind of beat God, I can have it both ways, I can, no, you can't. God knows our secrets, he knows our games, he holds all the cards. You, people try to make deals with God, God, you do this, I'll do this for you. He holds all the cards, there's no deal making with God. Why not simply surrender my heart and my life and my future to the good purposes of a God who has promised that he will never leave me or forsake me and he intends good for me all of my life and showed that in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a much better way to go, don't you think? Absolutely. So the bottom line then for Paul here is, you people, you you think Wise men are where it's at, you're wanting to trust in these guys. He says in verse twenty one, don't boast in men. Don't boast in men. It is so easy for us to want to put our trust in somebody, to think this is the guy or this is the girl, and to put them on a pedestal and to think they're the ones. They're really they're really where it's at. And we have seen a time and time again that in the end it doesn't matter. Like, think about—have we seen some putting hope in men this week? I mean, were you watching on Tuesday? That was quite a scene, wasn't it? As can you imagine being the guy walking down? Did you see the hallway that he walked down? And there's always people saluting and guards and guns and all this, and stepping out onto that uh, scene and seeing millions of people and, I mean, wow. In, in our world that would have to be the height of human accomplishment i would i would say don't you i mean maybe you can come up with something greater than that but to be to become the president of the united states and to be the most powerful man in the world would probably be in our world the greatest accomplishment and to have people shouting your name and putting hope in you and trust in you and thinking that you're this or that and so what can we say even about what we have seen this week in the end it's going to be the same as all of the hope and all of the trust that was ever put in any president or in any pharaoh or in any king or in any emperor who has ever lived. In the end, what happens to all of these guys? They're all dead. They're all dead. And then what has come of all of the hope and all of the trust and all of the accomplishment? Nothing. So why would we ever look at some fallible, human being and say, this is the person in whom I am going to put my trust. And this is what the Corinthians were doing. They looked at Paul and they heard of his vision of Jesus and they heard his teaching and his wisdom. And they saw the miracles perhaps that he did at Corinth. And they said, this is the guy that I am going to say is the man. This is the guy I'm going to put my trust in. And others said, no, but Peter, Peter was there. Paul wasn't there. Paul didn't walk on water. Paul wasn't at the Mount of Transfiguration. I really think Peter's the guy. I'm going to put my hope and my trust in Peter. This guy's really great. Others are like, well, what about Apollos? Apollos, he's mighty in word and knew the scriptures. He was a great speaker and, and the Corinthians love great speakers. They're like, I think Apollos, you know, Peter was there and Paul and all that. But Apollos, man, he's the new guy. He's the young guy. Those guys are old. They're out of date. I want to go with the fresh thing. I'm going with Apollos. And they get this whole rancor thing going because they're putting their hopes in men who are going to die. And Paul writes to them and says, what are you doing? Don't put your hope in men. There is no purpose and there is no future. And why should we not do that? Here is why. Verse 21. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are christ and christ is god gods all is ours because we are christ and christ and and all is his this is the crescendo this is the this is the doxology where paul just kind of lays it out the corinthian christians they had it entirely backwards they thought that they belonged to the leader And Paul says, you don't belong to the leader. The leader belongs to you. You don't belong to Paul. Paul belongs to you. You don't belong to Peter. Peter belongs to you. Why? Because they are merely workers in the field, he says previously. They're just your servants. You you don't belong to them. You belong to Christ. And whenever people get that backwards, it creates havoc in a local congregation. ever heard of a church splitting? If you've been around Christian circles very long, you certainly have. What's going on when that happens? Write it down. Somewhere along the way, somebody forgot who belonged to who. You ever hear people say something like this? This is my church. what wait 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 a second did you did you purchase it with your blood because when i read the scriptures i think this is christ's church because he bought it with his own precious blood what do you mean this is my church it's not your church you 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 belong to the church don't get that backwards like here this is not our the pastoral staff's church this is not my church this is christ's church we belong i belong to you the pastors, they belong to you. The elders, they, they, they belong to you. You are Christ's possession. And boy, we have got to keep that in mind because when we get it backwards, there is tons of pain that comes to a church when we don't realize who is who and who belongs to who. And so Paul now is writing and he wants to he wants to set their thinking aright. Let's make sure who belongs to who. Paul belongs to the church. Peter belongs to... To the church. In fact, everything is yours, he says in verse twenty one. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours. And I can say that to you, Christian, here today. All things are yours. Now you're sitting here going sure doesn't feel like it no the world is yours you're like i don't even own my house what are you talking about the world is mine life is yours i don't even have good health what do you mean life is mine death is yours I have no control over death. It scares me to death and I have no idea what that's all about. So how can I, death be mine today is yours. You're like, I have no idea what's happening in my day. And this has been a bad day thus far. I don't want to take possession of it whatsoever. (laughs) Tomorrow is yours. And you're like, what? I have no idea what tomorrow holds. How can it be my present possession? Well, the answer to this is the very next phrase: "All is yours, and you are Christ." You are Christ." And you see now this is how it works. These things belong to us because we belong to Him, and since everything belongs to him, it belongs to us as well. Do you get that? "All is ours because we are Christ, and since everything is His, it's ours, too. Do you get that? Christ owns everything, and he owns us as well. And he chooses to give us what he owns. Let me show you. Hebrews 1, verse 2 says this. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Christ owns everything. Christ is the possessor of everything. And out of his love and mercy, Romans 8 says this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. We are co heirs with the One who, ha- who has everything, which means that He shares all of these things with us, which means that they're ours. That's why Paul can say, everything is yours. The world. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, Jesus said. The world is Christ, which means that it is ours as well. Life, life is ours. Why? Because Jesus is the one who distributes eternal life so that we now, presently, today, experience eternal life. Life is ours. Life is yours, Christian. It may not feel like it, but it is. Life is yours. Death, Christ conquered death in his resurrection. He owns it. It's like, that's mine. That is mine. Which means now death is ours as well in the sense that we don't have to fear it. We don't have to fear it. Today is Christ. Tomorrow is Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He possesses all of time and all of the future. And he gives it to us as well. The future is ours. So that I'm glad that I can say this to you today. So glad that we, you maybe came in here today and you had this perspective on your life and you're like, oh, my life is sick and my, I, I'm so tired of this and I wish this was different and, and, and why does this have to be this way? Or maybe you've got, you've got something. Let me backtrack. What can I say to you When something in your life seems to be saying that you're about to lose something. Like the man who was sitting right here in the front row at the last service who told me today that he lost his job for six months. And he's got more kids than I can count. I don't even know how many kids he has. What what, what do you say to somebody like that? What do you say when somebody discovers that they have a disease or cancer, something that is threatening their life. They're a Christian. And it seems like there is about to be a major loss. What do you say? You say what Paul is saying here. That for the Christian, in spite of the present circumstances, there is no losing because in Christ all is ours. We are His possession, and because everything is His, it's all ours as well. So that our today and our tomorrow, our future, all of it is our possession in Christ. We belong to Him. And this is a tremendous comfort. I just so badly want you to get this this morning. I spent time this week... I spent time this week, I don't think they would mind me sharing this, with the ELO family. And we have been praying and praying and praying for the ELOs. And Kent, one of our deacons, beloved by us, has been fighting brain cancer. And it's rough right now, really rough. What do you say, or what truth do you bring to bear upon your heart and your mind when it would seem that losing is imminent? What do you say? You say what Paul is saying here. That for the Christian, all is ours Life and death, the world, today, the future, it is all ours because we are Christ. And this in the end is what brings significance for the Christian in this life and hope in the next. That these accomplishments, that the world, that's all they got, that we have today and we have tomorrow. And all of this has been accomplished because of the one that we belong to. Therefore, do not put your hope and trust and lift up high a man who, humanly speaking, amounts to nothing. For the Christian, the one that is lifted high and our hope and our trust in is Christ who has made all of this possible. And so when the church or when God's people forget who they are, and forget the way this is supposed to be. It creates all kinds of spiritual havoc within the church and within our hearts. And Paul's like, don't you get it? Don't you realize who you are? And don't you realize whose you are? You are his. And friends, this is what we need. What do we need here at Bethel? Well, we need... We'd love to have more square footage. We'd love to you know, have uh, more small groups. We'd love to have more people involved in ministry. We'd love to have this, that, and the other. You know what we really need? We need to remember who we are and whose we are. And to realize that because of whose we are, what we have. We have everything because of Christ. And to me, this is both the glory and the humility of it. It is our glory because of who we are in him and he is lord of all it is humility because we've done nothing for it nothing and someday when we realize all that we have in christ because we don't get it right now but someday when we do we are going to be overwhelmed with the reality that we have done nothing for this it is all of god and it is all of his grace and it is all of his mercy as he bestows upon rebels and sinners like us the very inheritance of his son we are co-heirs with christ and this is nothing that we walk out of here all proud of ourselves it is humbling don't you think I wish that we could produce tears on this point. It is humbling to us, and it must be, that God has bestowed all of these things upon us. Why? To magnify His love and to glorify His grace and to display to us and to all the world the wonder of His mercy. He has done this for us and for His glory. We are the possession of Christ. We belong to Him. So why boast in a man? Why say this is the guy or this is the woman where it's at? Oh boy, they're really, isn't, aren't they cool? Aren't they excited? Why? They amount to nothing. But Christ is everything. So, never boast in a man. Never boast in a woman. But all boasting and praise be to the one who gave Himself in the cross. And with that, gave us everything else as well. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Amen.